Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Christy Johnston Lamone. And she most recently served as the Executive Director of the Center for Social Sectors Leadership at our very own UC Berkeley Haas School of Business. She recently launched her own social impact management consultancy called Proxima Partners, where she is currently serving as a principal. Welcome to the podcast, Christy. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Christy, you have been just awesome to, to get to know. We had a, for listeners, we had a pre-call before this, just so that I can get to know Christy a little bit better. And I would love to have you share with our audience, you know, your background, where you grew up, how you grew up, and kind of how that builds into your story today. Thanks so much for that question. It is really fun to answer because you can answer it in lots of different ways, depending on who you're talking to. I like to talk about my origin story as being based in Los Angeles and San Francisco. So my mom and dad are both from Guatemala City, Central America, and they happened to meet in the mid-70s at a Christmas party in San Francisco. My mom's birthday is Christmas Eve. Wow. My mom's cousin invited her to come party with her. She was living in L.A. at the time, so she came up to San Francisco and went to this party And she said she looked across the room and saw this really handsome man staring at her. And instantly he walks over to her, puts out his hand, and she limply shakes it and gives him a smirk. Like, yeah, you're so full of yourself. (laughs) And my father likes to say, she's going to be mine. (laughs) Yeah. So that's how they met. Like many immigrant stories, they both came to the United States at different eras. My father came in the 1960s. Because at the time, there was a bit of a labor shortage, and so they were actively recruiting folks to come move to the United States and fill roles in different industries, mostly in the service industry. So my father's first job, I want to say, was at General Hospital as a food service worker. You know, really long hours, pretty much blue-collar labor. And um, he would go on to continue to do that work for 30 years for the school district in San Francisco. He was a cafeteria guy. Wow. And my mom came from Guatemala City in the late 60s, early 70s, following a heartbreak. And the first heartbreak was because she wanted to go to nursing school. And her father basically said that that was no career for a daughter of his. And instead, she had to care for the family. She's the oldest of eight. And the second heartbreak was when her boyfriend started dating her cousin. And so she didn't see any reason to stay. And so she decided to, on a travel visa, come to Los Angeles to stay with an aunt, and she never left. So, yeah, they met later, about a year later. I came into the picture, and when I was about a month old, we got on a plane to San Francisco, and that's where I grew up. So I grew up in the 1980s in the Mission District in San Francisco, which at the time was a super vibrant destination for Central American families. There was a huge Guatemalan population, huge Salvadoran and Nicaraguan population. And of course, the previous waves of immigrants that had been there, the Italians and the Irish and other communities. So it was just really vibrant. But like so many immigrant communities was also really struggling with, you know, the crack epidemic, the proliferation of guns and gangs and drugs. And so there was this interesting mix of really vibrant arts and culture and music and food, also mixed with some of these other challenges that are, you know, largely driven by socioeconomics and redlining. 
and disinvestment. So I think for me, it was just such an interesting time to be coming up, you know, in a big city like San Francisco. I imagine that that's why you, you kind of focus on what you focus on today. That's exactly right. I mean, so much of what we do does stem from childhood experiences. And for me, it was seeing this huge contrast between the neighborhood that I would commute to across town on the bus every day to go to school. So growing up in the mission, I was lucky enough that my father worked for a really great middle school out in the avenues that had an arts program, it had a music program, it had an honors program. And so I was able to participate in all of that. I was an honor student. And so I was able to take courses that would prepare me for college as early as sixth grade. I took French, I took Spanish. I was in the orchestra, I played the cello. But then I go back to my community and there's not all these opportunities for my neighbors, you know? And so it was just this contrast of having really green streets, you know, they were clean, everything was well kept and it was just 40 minutes across town. And so I saw this huge contrast between these two neighborhoods. And I think at a very early age, I became very conscious of inequities. And I think that really helped to form my worldview and to question those inequities and to really try to think about how to close gaps so that, you know, other young people growing up in my community who were, were really smart, really talented, but just didn't have access to AP classes by the time we got to high school or have access to arts program or after school enrichment programs. It just seemed like it was ma a matter of justice and, and fairness. Yeah. And I think that runs really deep in our family, this idea of like justice. I'm really curious. What, what did you study at Berkeley? Political science. <laughs> yeah. What would you do with that afterwards? Oh, and why? I guess why? Why poli sci? So for me, poli sci was a total accident. I actually transferred in from City College of San Francisco. So, you know, I talked about my upbringing. You know, my family was very much blue collar, very acutely aware of not having the same resources that other people had, and so in my transition from high school to college, I just didn't know that I could do that. I didn't know that you had to, you know, take tests and apply. And so I just didn't have that guidance, despite having gone to a better high school than the ones that were available in my community. Uh, so I ended up going to City College for a couple of years while I worked. So I worked basically all through my undergrad. I either had one or two jobs so that I could put myself through school, being the first in my family to go to college. And so I was working for these um, nonprofit organizations, really helping to address some of the inequalities that I talked about in my childhood, in my neighborhood, and in society. And I think that's where I was awakened to this idea of power and resources and how you control those resources. And then through a series of history courses that I took at City College, uh, majoring in Latin American studies and history, I started to understand these patterns and these systems and then starting to question how to change them. And so when I transferred from City College to UC Berkeley, there happened to be someone from the poli sci department recruiting outside of one of my classes. And so they invited us to come out and meet with the department, meet with some of the graduate students and the professors and they were the ones that were actively recruiting. And so I declared that as my major. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a total accident. <laughs> but really interesting and aligned with what I thought my intellectual interests were and what I thought I wanted to do after graduation. 
as part of the work that I was doing by the time I was a senior, I was authoring a senior thesis, and it was all about political coalitions across Black and brown communities. And the research was really around the Rainbow Coalition movement. So back in the days of Jesse Jackson getting together with the leaders of Black and brown communities, trying to really affect change that would uplift Black and brown communities. I had not really had access to that kind of learning in high school or even at City College. And so understanding how those political coalitions were formed to actually start to change policy and to change the outcomes in the communities that I had grown up in uh, became just really important to me. Yeah. And so I would then take that political science degree and I went to go work for the Senate as a legislative aide right after graduation. Wow. You know, you ended up going to the MBA. Really curious, you know, why you decided to go do an MBA. I had a career as a community organizer following a year of really incredible work making legislation and policy that was going to affect all of California. And so I found that to be interesting and potentially game-changing, but super disconnected from the community that I was from and who I thought I wanted to work with, having had a career in nonprofit and social service organizations that were doing direct service with families, with small business owners, with immigrant communities. And so I started a nonprofit when I was 27, where I was working directly to support small businesses, mostly owned by Latino and Asian immigrants. And I found it to be incredibly powerful to be able to help stabilize a small business owner because you're not just working with them, you're actually working with the entire family and the mm. community that they employ. And I could see the power of supporting a small business owner. They might have a bakery, they might not have a lease, they're at risk of losing their livelihood should that property go up for sale or should the business fold. And so I worked directly with them to help them figure out how to purchase the property that their business was in, for example. And that's one pathway to start to stabilize and build assets and wealth, which we know is how so many folks are able to, in one or two generations, go from abject poverty to actually being homeowners and being able to affect generational transfers of wealth, which is how folks are building their family and their impact. We know that in politics, money is power and influence. And if we want to continue to make change, part of that has to also be about being able to leverage your assets in order to do that. And so that was the moment mm. when I realized that that was an important thing to better understand. But it wasn't for another 10 years that I would pursue a master's. And that was largely for two reasons. One was I didn't really know that an MBA was an option. It's not like I had someone career coaching me. I was right. busy building up different nonprofit organizations that are essentially small businesses or medium-sized or even large businesses. Right. I would go on to grow another one, and I led a capital project and a campaign where I was trying to raise money and to build out a real estate project and really started to learn some of the things that maybe you would learn in an MBA program but still didn't know about it. And right about the time when I was about to complete my first fundraising campaign and capital project, one of my uh, board members is an executive in residence at Haas, and he actually suggested that I look at the program, thinking that I could benefit from some of the tools and the resources, but also the network, which, 
again, like it's not something that I really knew about. Nobody tells you, hey, if you go and participate in this thing that so many other people don't really have access to, that could really help uplift you and your network through the ties that you make or the connections you make. So that was my first sort of inclination that maybe I could benefit from, you know, a little more learning. There's so much that you know, but so much more that you don't know that you don't know. So yeah, I'm really thankful for those folks in my community who've sort of guided me along the way when they see potential, they open doors. And I think that's what I appreciated most about the Haas MBA program is the way that as soon as you're in, like the whole world is open to you. It's mm -hmm. it's incredible way to just not meet people that maybe you wouldn't otherwise encounter, but really build relationships. It's not just about getting ahead or trying to advance your own work. It really is about getting to know folks and seeing what values you share, what aspirations you share. We have so much more in common than we don't. And so for me, I think that was really, you know, one of the impacts of the program. But it was really about understanding that there was so much I didn't know about the world of management and leadership. And I really wanted to continue to learn. That's always been innate, you know, in my family. From a, a young age, my father was always instilling a, in us the the need to pursue an education and to continue learning. Yeah. And so that was also the other thing was, you know, we talk about student always. I'm everyone says <laughs> I'm a fast learner, but yeah. like there's things that, you know, you really want to try to learn, like financing and marketing and great leadership. And those are the things that I just had never really had access to before. Right. Right. So, you know, coming out of Haas, how did you, how did you take your MBA and mold it into your career? I think one of our professors said that an MBA wasn't going to make you an expert in any one thing, but that it would allow you to know just enough about everything to be dangerous. Mm. I like that. <laughs> uh, I'm going to mess up the quote a little bit, but it's something <laughs> like that. And that's what I did with it is I took my MBA and decided that I would scale my impact with it somehow. I was uh, leading a really highly regarded local arts and culture organization in Oakland. And I believe I took it as far as it wanted to go. And so that's when I realized it was time for me to move on. And I had a real choice to make. Did I want to lead a larger organization or did I want to, to sort of cruise? and raise my child at that time that I finished my MBA and my daughter was two and a half. Mm. And so we thought about maybe growing the family. And I thought, you know, I may have another big initiative under my belt. So I then went to go work for and lead a national spoken word organization, which really creates these amazing platforms for young people to express all of their hopes and dreams and questions and challenges about our society in a really poetic way, you know, through spoken word. I would describe it as a social justice organization disguised as an arts organization. <laughs> Not such a big secret anymore. But the organization was, you know, at an inflection point. It was led by the founder of 22 years, and they were really looking for someone to help the organization scale. And I thought, sure, I'm going to take a crack at this. And oh my gosh, Sean, I use just about every leadership tool that I learned at Haas every day. 
And it was really cool to be able to find myself in really sticky situations on an almost daily basis and have the learning, have the community. So my classmates and I are on a WhatsApp. And so it's kind of like our ability to tap each other's expertise basically on demand. And folks are super invested in each other. And so I had these consultants that really helped me navigate really big challenges. And so I was able to lead the organization in a way that had not really been done before from this business lens, but also from this arts and culture lens. And from my own lived experience, having been one of the young people that could have gone through one of these programs because we serve those communities that I'm from. And most of the young people we're serving are from San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, from inner city communities. And here we were 20 years later, and these kids are still talking about the same things that me and my peers were talking about, about disinvestment, about gentrification, about the police and the way that they brutalize our communities and on and on. And so the unsheltered crisis, I mean, so much just had not changed. Right. So I was just very inspired to help this organization not just stabilize itself, but to do like I had done before, which is to ensure that the organization had a really stable home. Not having a home and having been displaced is something that's actually really personal to me. My family had to move about eight times before I turned 18 because of, you know, housing instability is also a big thing in immigrant communities. Rent's expensive. Sometimes there's work, sometimes there's not. So for me, finding a long-term home for these arts organizations that were doing incredible work in our communities and really helping uplift the voices and the issues and the concerns that we need to address is a very powerful way to do it. So with Youth Speaks, I decided to, right in the middle of a pandemic, launch a capital campaign to raise $2 million to get into a 35-year lease at a new affordable housing development. So a really cool project, hadn't really been done before. And I felt really confident because one, I'd done it before, but two, I had my MBA. So I know (laughs) how to finance things. I know how to raise money. I know how to manage money. And so that gave me the confidence that I really needed because it was not an easy project. But yes, that is how I decided to leverage my MBA at the time. I love it. You had mentioned to me kind of the importance of getting involved in local government, civic engagement in general. Love to hear you talk a little bit about that and how that can help shape, you know, improve our communities. Our communities have a huge distrust of elected officials and city government, state government in general, and for good reason, right? It's really difficult for the average person to pinpoint the way that government has served them. Mm -hmm. And so... That's something I learned working in the legislature is that there are actual lobbying and interest groups and very powerful associations that when they come together and make demands, those in elected office cannot ignore them, ignore Mm. them at their peril. You know, there's a reason why there's democratic elections. When someone's not serving you, you vote them out. And so I learned that really early on. I don't know if I mentioned this, but um, when I was 19 years old was when Prop 187 and Prop 209 were on the ballot. And I don't know if you remember the time, but it was when Pete Wilson was governor. It was when immigrants were being scapegoated for the bad economy. And so these propositions passed, basically excluding immigrants from accessing schools, healthcare, basic services. And then Prop 
209 was to end affirmative action. And so the year that I got into UC Berkeley was the first year that affirmative action had been removed. So the Latinx student population was below 3% Hmm. out of 30,000 students. And so I directly saw the impact of the ballot box. I saw the impact of policy and legislation. And so I decided to become more active in organizing the voices of folks who had not been represented. And so how I did that was through a number of different campaigns. But I would say most recently, I've become really involved in ensuring that the folks that we are electing into office are truly accountable to the voters. And so I've decided to get together with a crew of folks here in Oakland who have been impacted by the real lack of coordination and really collaboration at City Hall and have gotten very involved in the mayoral race. And not that we're necessarily aligned behind one candidate, but it's been more about growing the awareness amongst my community of how their vote really does matter Mm -hmm. and how to think about what values and what plans people want to support that they feel will help move our city in the right direction. Uh, Oakland is really challenged right now. As you know, there's been a series of shootings. There was one at a school just last week here in East Oakland that was really concerning. And we just don't feel like there's leadership happening that really represents the communities that are most affected by their lack of leadership, right? So Mm -hmm. that's um, how I've gotten involved is to, one, get friends, community members together yeah. To really talk about some of the values that we share, to how to formulate questions and address some of these issues directly with the candidates. And three, we're really encouraging people to donate, to use your money as an investment in the leadership of the city. And that's not something that folks in my community are necessarily used to doing. Not only are we not involved in politics, but I don't know that at large we contribute financially, and that is really important too. And so it's really around education and having folks really understand how the process works, how these candidates operate, and that, again, here, money makes a difference. Your donation will make a difference in how this candidate not only views the community that you're a part of and you and your voice, but also gets their own message out. So that's for me super important is just to continue to build awareness around how we as individuals and as a community or a collective can help to impact, you know, who is elected in office and then what they decide to do when they're there. When you look at how the government works and how disempowered you feel, how are you inspired, you personally, to do something about it versus just, you know, throwing your hands up in the air and saying, well, there's nothing I can do. I stay inspired by keeping my ear to the ground, and I'm very fortunate to have had a 15-year career now in the arts, supporting young people and artists, particularly young people and artists of color, with their art making. So I am inspired when I see a young person who's 15 years old and who has written a fire poem, and they're on stage speaking their truth. That is their story, but there's so many elements of it that resonate and so many things that I learn as well when I'm hearing them talk about the 
lack of economic opportunity or the impact of our behavior on climate and their future on these hundred-year floods that are happening every year. I had a young man who's the poet laureate for the city of Houston who had the crowd just on their feet when he was poetically sharing the experience of the floods in Houston a couple of years ago and the impact of the community. And these are things that you can read them in a newspaper. You can watch the story on the news on television, but to actually bear witness to someone testifying about their experience on the ground, that is so inspiring and moving. And it humanizes it. It makes that personal connection to an issue that can feel completely overwhelming. And that is why I think most people are disconnected. I think it was Trevor Noah who talked about how climate change can feel like such a big and impossible issue to address. And so we'd much rather scroll through TikTok videos. And that makes sense. I mean, it can feel really daunting um, and psychologically inaccessible. How I handle my daughter, who's eight years old, asking me about the polar ice caps and how much longer the planet is going to actually survive when she comes home from school is I tell her that there isn't an imminent threat to the planet in the sense that we're not going to see the asteroid hit, you know, tomorrow, but that there are little things that we can do every day to help mitigate the impact of humans on the planet. I went with her to her very first protest last Friday, the global climate strike, because she was interested in better understanding climate justice issues. She didn't use that language. All she said was, Mom, I heard that there's a rally and some of my classmates are going. I'd like to go. And so I said, great, you have a day off school. I'll take you. And what was so cool is that when she got there, she was taking in the scene and she's like, mom, there are little things we can do to make sure that we take care of our planet. She's like, can you stop using single use plastic (laughs) 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 to pack my snacks? I was like, done. (laughs) (laughs) So it's about making it personal. It's about making it tangible. I'm super inspired by our young people in this generation that's coming up that is not just aware and feeling the impacts of the decisions that we've been making for hundreds of years, but that are feeling empowered to speak up about it and feel like they can do even a little thing like that to address it. So that's inspiring to me. How do we not be discouraged to continue the fight against inequality. I mean, what you're really asking about is what's it going to take to address generations of marginalization and inequality? And I ask myself that too. I think for me, it's been about 20 years that I've been working in social justice movements at different levels. Mm -hmm. So as a teenager, I was marching and I was engaging families and making sure that they had a stable place to call home as they were finding themselves here for lots of different reasons. Because of the economic pressures, because of the social pressures, people continue to immigrate here for the same reasons that they were 30, 40 years ago. In the 1980s, we saw a wave of Central American refugees who were fleeing ethnic genocide and cleansing from Central America. And here we are 40 years later seeing a very similar out pouring of people who are fleeing the violence that generations of economic instability and violence in the cartels and a lack of a coordinated effort amongst the government to really address the needs of the population. And then these communities are here and 
getting adjusted to a new country, a new way of life. And for me, that gives me hope. It means that there is an uh, incoming generation of young people growing up in the United States seeing opportunity that they didn't have back home. And so that, to me, is super inspiring. So it's why I work with young people. It's why I'm working in immigrant communities, because there's the ability to shape how these young people and their families are going to engage in a democratic society. It's why I'm working to make sure that they have their basic needs met so that they can be involved in the political process. And so that's how I stay inspired, just seeing, again, these new and growing communities across the country of folks who have the same values that we have. They believe in family. Many have a Christian or Catholic background and believe in God, and they pray, and they have this work ethic and this belief in supporting themselves and each other. They believe in education. We believe in higher education as a, another way to continue to build up and uplift our families and communities. And so I just see so much in common with the promise of like the American dream, right? Which, you know, we can talk about that too, but that's what's drawing people here. And so let's use that as the inspiration to help our communities really thrive. Couldn't agree more. Now, thank you so much for sharing that. On our parting note, I'd love to have you just quickly share a little bit about Proxima Partners and what it is that you do now. Sure. So I noticed after 15 years working in nonprofit executive leadership and administration that there are really big gaps in our industry. There is no reason for an executive director to have to learn real estate development or how to build a capital stack in order to stabilize and strengthen their organization. And so that's what I do. I happen to have this really interesting combination of now real estate development and fundraising for nonprofits, my MBA and all of the mm -hmm. skills and the network that that brings, and a passion for building communities and a career in community and economic development. And so I have a deep understanding of the internal and the external forces that nonprofit organizations face. So here's what we do. We develop strong boards. You know, boards are made up of volunteers from across sector and industry. Having a nonprofit board that is impactful and that can really uplift and support the mission of the organization is super key. They are the partners to the executive leadership. The other piece will be around supporting the leadership. So I do quite a bit of coaching, mentoring. I build plans. I mostly work with Latinx, Black, and API leaders. So a BIPOC community of leaders is what I'm very invested in continuing to develop in the sector because the sector largely works with these communities, yet our representation, especially at the executive leadership level, isn't that. And then thirdly, I also work directly with strategy. So I'm a very strategic thinker, and I love to help organizations think 5, 10, 15, 20 years in the future and position themselves so that they can continue to strengthen and grow their work and their impact. Because in the end, the social sector is the one that's really helping to lead change, to close these equity gaps that we talked about. And as a real partner, to government and to the private sector to achieve impact. And so the stronger we can make these organizations, I think the more likely it is that we're going to start to see some of these big challenges in our society abate. Things like affordable housing, things like education, things like really creating opportunities to build strong 
vibrant communities. So that's what we do at Proxima Partners. We specialize in real estate development, fundraising strategy, and executive leadership. No, thank you so much, Christy, for coming on the podcast today and just sharing all your experiences and, and advice. I, I think this is so important for any generation, but especially of our generation this, of this day and age. So really appreciate having you on. Thanks for having me. It was a really fun conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. <laughs>